And now, Unplugged, a CCVO podcast with David Mitchell. The author of a provocative new book, Collaborating with the Enemy, Adam Kahane provided a real highlight for CCVO's 2018 Connections Conference in Calgary. Before opening up the discussion to an engaged audience, I got the ball rolling in conversation with the extraordinary facilitator, consultant, and author, Adam Kahane, thinking differently about collaboration. Adam, welcome to this culmination of a very extraordinary day of conversation, dialogue, and I think it's so appropriate. The the more I think about it and the more I have listened to the the conversations that have taken place throughout the day, how appropriate for us to be capping this day with a conversation with you on a theme that is well known to everyone here. All of those who have read your work over the years, including your most recent book, Collaborating with the Enemy, a title that has captured our imagination and attention. And those who haven't read it have heard about it, and I'm sure after today's session they're going to want to read it. They're not going to want to wait for the movie. Um, So I'd like to start off by asking you a few questions before opening it up to the what's on the minds, what, what are people here curious about? And that's how I'm going to approach my conversation with you. But I'm going to give a heads up to, to everyone here today that uh, when we get to the comments and questions, um, we, we invite you to share your curiosity about uh, Adam's current, most recent book or the ideas um, that we're going to talk about behind it. That, that will be meaningful and helpful. Uh, we all talk a lot about collaboration. We've done that for quite a while. But we don't do it as well as we talk about it, it seems to me. And in your, in your most recent book, Collaborating with the Enemy, you, there's a quote I've made a note of here. Collaboration seems both imperative and impossible. What do we do, you ask, at the start of the book? And it does seem hard. Real collaboration seems challenging. Why is that? And why did you say that it's both imperative and impossible? Well, thank you. Um, Thanks for the invitation. Uh, I, I guess I... I have a sort of a contradictory relationship with collaboration, which is a a way of getting into the answer to your question. Um, On the one hand, uh, uh, this this has been uh, my life's work uh, since I got started uh, uh, 27 years ago in uh, working in South Africa during the transition from apartheid to democracy, and so this question or this work of helping actors work together, um, people who don't agree with or like or trust each other, people from government, business, civil society, who who are different in the most uh, radical ways there are. So this is what I do all day every day and have for 27 years. This is uh, the work of Rio's partners. It's what we do around the world all day every day. So uh, that's on the one hand. And on the other hand, I, yeah, and the reason we do that is because the collaboration is becoming increasingly imperative uh, for reasons we, we can go into later. Uh, on the other hand, I think collaboration is vastly overrated and overhyped. I'm uh, genuinely alarmed at the number of organizations I go into where I see the word collaboration on their values or their mission statement uh, without any acknowledgement of what a problematic activity it is. Um, and so because I'm uh, uh, 
have a, not a confrontational, but I'm, I have the, the kind of thinking that's always about what's the other perspective on it, let me emphasize that, that second point, which is why, is why do I think collaboration is uh, overhyped? Or um, the, the, the real danger, I think, is that we underestimate how difficult it is, and because we underestimate how difficult it is, we will fail and therefore go back to not collaborating. But anyhow, to, so that's the introduction. To give you a short answer to your specific question, the collaboration is difficult. Uh, um, the, the way in which collaboration is difficult is summarized in the title of the book, Collaborating with the Enemy, which is a very controversial title. The word collaboration has two meanings. One meaning is simply to work together with, okay, very ordinary meaning. But the word collaboration has a second meaning, which is why particularly my European partners in Rios really didn't like the title of the book. To be a collaborator means to be a traitor. Uh, this is a word specifically associated with, with uh, people who collaborated with the Nazis during the Nazi occupation of Europe. So collaboration, the word on the one hand means something very ordinary, something you need to do in many circumstances, and on the other hand means the worst possible thing you could do. And the reason in the end I stuck with this title is because I think this tension is at the heart of collaboration. It's not a peripheral matter that applies only when you're occupied by Nazis. It's actually at the core of the matter, and the core of the matter is the following. I think that in order to get where I need to go, I need to work with those people, and at the same time, I don't want to, and I worry that if I was to work with those people, I would be a traitor. And I don't think that's a peripheral matter. I think that's the heart of the challenge of collaboration. It would be nice, I guess, I would certainly prefer it, if I could only work with people I liked and agreed with and trusted, but we can't. Uh, and therefore we have to enter into this genuinely dangerous uh, territory. So I think to gloss that over and say, well, we just need to collaborate more, for me, uh, is a fundamental, uh, well, is a, is a fundamental and dangerous uh, misunderstanding. It's also a ridiculous idea. It, it's, if you just think about it for a minute, we can't work with everybody on everything, and we can't not work with anybody on anything. So it's a matter of choice. On which issues are we gonna collaborate with which people? So to say we have to collaborate, it's a, it's, it's actually a nonsensical statement. But when do we have to collaborate and with whom and how do we do it successfully, particularly in circumstances, which I argue are more and more common, where we, where we need to find a way to work with people that we don't agree with or like or trust? So, long answer to a short question. Very good, thank you. You know, in spite of the difficulties, the challenges, the dangers, the impossibility of collaboration that you reference in your new book, one of the things that has really struck me after reading it a couple of times now is the optimism. The optimism that you express that it's possible for people who hold contradictory positions to find ways to work together. I find that impressive and I'm wondering if you could explain. So let me tell you an extreme story, and the reason I tell extreme stories is because I think they're instructive and because I, I believe, this is not an exaggeration, that the dynamics in extraordinary situations are the, exactly the same as the dynamics in ordinary situations. So, um, so uh, I've worked um, a little bit for a long time in the country of Colombia, in South America. 
and uh, 20 years ago and also uh, in the last few months again. And uh, had a workshop in November of last year and um, I overheard a conversation on the way to lunch. One of the leaders of the now demobilized guerrilla movement, the FARC, uh, was walking beside a businesswoman and he said to her, haven't I seen you somewhere before? Uh, your face looks familiar to me. And she said, yes, actually, uh, we have met before. I guess you've forgotten. Uh, I was the one who brought you the $5 million ransom for the kidnapping of my daughter. And in the, it was a workshop of several days, and in the days that followed, uh, that group of people, which about 30 of them, um, went on to, yeah, to figure out a lot of stuff to do together, uh, to make a long story short. So my optimism is based very simply on the fact uh, that I have seen literally in the most extreme situations in the world uh, that it is possible. I've seen it with my own eyes uh, that it's possible for people that have a, yeah, that don't agree with or like or trust each other that are, have real differences, <laughs> not imaginary differences. This is not a misunderstanding. This is a it's important uh, uh, to work together. So that's... Uh, um, we've been, uh, Rios has been working a lot the last few years in Mexico with a, a team that, a very diverse team from the presidency, CEOs of companies, an archbishop, uh, human rights activists, people from the military, journalists, young people. So in Mexican terms, extraordinarily uh, diverse group of people who really uh, don't agree with each other, and even after three years, really don't agree with each other. Um, and at the last workshop, which was in February, this team, this team, in spite of not agreeing with each other, is doing a lot together. Um, this is interesting to me. This is one of the not obvious things I've learned is it is possible to work with people you don't agree with. And at the last workshop in February, uh, uh, one of the organizers said to me, he said, this is like heaven on earth. I said, w what do you mean heaven on earth? He said, the experience we're having here is not the ideal of heaven on earth. It's not like reading about it in the Bible. It's the experience that actually here we can all be ourselves in all our differences and not only coexist but work together. So this to me is, this is so my optimism arises from having seen this, uh, well, uh, sometimes, sometimes successfully, many times unsuccessfully, but I've seen with my own eyes it can work. Just one, uh, more vignette, which I think will explain a bit of my thinking. Um, when I said we've been working in Colombia for 20 years, the first uh, work in Colombia was in 1996, and it was organized by a young politician who's now the president of Colombia, Juan Manuel Santos, who in, 20, in October 2016 was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. And on the day he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, his, the, the office of the presidency put an essay on their website, um, something like The Road to Peace. Uh, anyway, it was an essay explaining, it was a biographical essay explaining President Santos's history that had led to him being awarded the Peace Prize for having negotiated the end of this 52-year uh, civil war. Uh, and uh, it, this essay contained a sentence I liked a lot. It said, one, one a significant event in the road to peace was a series of workshops facilitated by the Canadian, uh, and that's me. So anyhow, I was uh, uh, El Canadiense. So I was thrilled about this. Of course, the first thing I did was ask the person who 
maintains the Rios website to make a link, like right away, put that on our... But I actually didn't understand why he was saying that. Because I couldn't understand. What, why, did he, why does he keep referring, because he mentions it almost every month, why does he keep referring to these workshops uh, 20 years ago? Uh, these are workshops that involved all the armed actors and cabinet ministers and um, provincial premiers and stuff like that. Um, uh, so much has happened. Uh, there are five years of negotiations in Havana, uh, years and years of United Nations missions. Uh, Santos himself had been Minister of Defense and had tried to destroy the guerrillas. So I didn't understand why he mentioned this. And uh, actually about a year ago, I was in Bogota for a, um, a conference, and I did, uh, like this, a public interview of Santos. And this was the question I wanted to ask him. I said, uh, President Santos, of course I'm thrilled uh, and uh, gratified that you keep referring to our workshops 20 years ago, but why? Why do you keep referring to it? Uh, and he had a very interesting answer. The book was already published, so I couldn't change the book, but it's a much clearer answer than I gave in the book. And he said, what, the reason I keep referring to this work 20 years ago, this, which is called Destino Colombia, is because this is where I learned that contrary to everything I'd been taught, he comes from a political family, I think his uncle had been president, his family owned the, the main newspaper in Bogota, he said, contrary to everything I had been taught, it is possible to work with people we do not agree with and will never agree with. And this is really interesting, and I hadn't thought of it that way. Because normally we think, well, you know, we'll get together with these other people, we'll talk for a while, we'll find actually it's all just a terrible misunderstanding. And we actually, we, we do agree, and then it'll be fine. But I think it's usually not like that. It's usually not like that. I think, for example, we'll talk about later if you want, this Alberta, BC thing is not a misunderstanding. There's, there's real differences there. And so he was saying that it is possible to work with people you do not agree with and will never agree with. And I thought that was, now that's stating the hypothesis more strongly uh, and clearly than I did. By the way, in that same interview, I asked him uh, another question. I said, um, President Santos, what for you personally has been the most difficult part of, be, of, of coming to this peace treaty? And he said, well, you know, I was much more popular when I was Minister of War than I am as President of Peace. In fact, politically he's finished. He's ending his second term with uh, uh, terrible uh, um, opinion polls. He said the most difficult thing was being considered a traitor. And I also think this is very important. Collaboration <laughs> It can be fun, it can be creative, it can be necessary, but it can also really be risky. And, and so this is all saying that I think there is a way to collaborate. I think it's, it actually requires us in certain respects to operate 180 degrees differently than we think we ought to operate. So it's the opposite approach is required, which I can get into if you're interested. Uh, but it's doesn't always succeed, and can fail terribly. So what I'm really wanting is for us to treat collaboration more uh, realistically. That, that's what I'm trying to do. Very good, very good. And um, Adam, I'm wanting to uh, discuss with you the idea that you describe and define in your new book about stretch collaboration. But before, I, before we talk about that, I'd like uh, everyone to know that just for your information, friends, uh, Adam uh, went on CBC Radio today at 12 noon and did the uh, noon hour program and took calls from around the province of Alberta. And sure enough, uh, Adam has related to me the issue of pipelines and Alberta-BC relations did come up. And uh, uh, whether we have time to get into that later, we'll see. But your previous book, entitled Power and Love. Um, is, is a book that I very much enjoyed uh, reading. It's had a, an impact on my thinking. And I can't help but reflect on our earlier session, just before this one, where 
Alec Mansky and Vicki Kamak um, talked about love and caring. And it was a, a really terrific conversation. But I want to reflect back on power and love, which I see as a prelude to collaborating with the enemy in, in many ways. But in that book, you talk very clearly about the need for both power and love, and how one without the other might not be, shall I put it this way, so effective. Am I correct in how I'm interpreting that? Uh, yes. So, uh, the book Power and Love is a, is a extended commentary on one sentence in, or two sentences in uh, one of the final speeches of Martin Luther King Jr. before he was assassinated, which is 50 years ago, I think, last week. Um, and in this speech, he said, and here he was, I later found out he was referring, or he was referencing the work of the theologian on whom he'd written his uh, doctoral dissertation, Paul Tillich. So uh, if you're interested in the, the origin of this thinking, it arises in part from Tillich. But King said the following, he said, power without love is reckless and abusive and love without power is sentimental and anemic. This clash between immoral power and powerless morality is the central crisis of our time. So the book is an exploration of this idea, and yes, the, the point which Tillich and King are making is that to choose either power or love is always a mistake. In other words, that it's not true that all you need is love. It's a, it's an un, it's a, it's a terribly, uh, it's a terribly, um, it's a politically and theologically and politically incorrect statement. Uh, and in fact, uh, we all know that power without love is reckless and abusive. So to try to get what you want, to try to use your drive, use your gifts, use your position, use your uh, self-development to get what you want, um, ignoring others and ignoring your connection to others is reckless and abusive. This is well known. But what's not so well known is that love without power, to talk about wholeness in a way that that ignores or suppresses the agency and, and separateness and differences among people is sentimental and anemic. Actually sentimental and anemic at best and at worst cynically reproducing of the status quo. So yes, I, um, this, uh, I think this is an important idea and in fact I, I bring it in again into the book Collaborating with the Enemy and the, the, the way I bring it into collaborating with the enemy is, uh, has a very clear, well, to me is clearly applicable to, to, the, to the last few days of controversy about the pipeline. Because, have you ever heard anybody say in Alberta or in your organization, let's just put, could you just put your own agenda aside? Let's think of the good of the whole. Does anybody ever say that? Let's think of the good of Calgary or the community or the organization or the department or the province. This statement makes no sense at all. It's, it's simplistic and it's manipulative. What it almost always means is, let's pay attention to the whole that matters to me. And there are, I'm saying something very simple, but for some reason not widely understood. There's a word, it was coined by Arthur Kessler, in, I think 1957, I don't know why it's not a better known word, it's the word holon. A holon is a whole that's part of a larger whole. That's all it means. Holon, H-O-L-O-N. So I'm a holon, I have a identity, I have a history, I have needs, I have ambitions, um, I have a boundary, we're the whole of this um, interview, 
the two of us are, are the whole of the people in the group. Brenna and I are the whole of the Rio's partners team in, in Calgary. Uh, today, we're part of a larger whole of the global. So to say, let's pay attention to the good of the whole doesn't make any sense, except in some super cosmic way about everything in the universe. But that's not what people mean. So that's why I was so struck when Trudeau, who I think of, well, I think of all of the politicians involved as sophisticated uh, players, to say, this is necessary for the good of the whole. Well, there isn't one whole here. What's the whole? Is it the financial integrity of TransCanada pipeline? Is it the economic whole of Alberta? Is it the whole of the people living in Burnaby? I mean, what's the whole that matters? So this is a very, um, so the first, uh, uh, so Power and Love, which is related to the first of the three stretches says, there's always multiple holes. And yes, they have commonality, which is the, which is I, I think the, the spirit of what uh, Al and Vicky were emphasizing, and they have differences. And that's the reality of the situation. You might, you might want to say, no, 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 we're all one, but that's not true. We're one and many at the same time, and collaboration which ignores that can't work, uh, especially collaboration amongst diverse actors. And in, in Canada in 2018, this is made genuinely difficult and confusing by the fact that the political holes in Canada are not settled. Uh, and what is the relationship between the whole of Canada, the whole of Alberta, the whole of the Squamish people, uh, uh, the whole of um, uh, the BC Union of First Nations? There, these are the, the rules governing the relationship among these holes are not clear. It's not, uh, uh, we can't even say, well, let's just follow the rules. The rules are in flux at the moment. So, so for me, this need to recognize not only love, which is the way in which we're all part of something larger, but also power, the way in which we're whole in ourselves, and the fact that there's always multiple holes that, yes, are connected, but also are in conflict, is the, absolutely the first step for being able to collaborate. Stretch collaboration. You say in collaborating with the enemy that for most people it's unfamiliar and uncomfortable. Why is that? And maybe could you talk a little bit about how you define stretch collaboration? Uh, yeah, let me just say one thing before I come to the answer to your question because there's a, another part of this that I think is required to understand stretch collaboration. So I think it's not possible to think clearly about collaboration uh, unless we recognize that it's not the only choice. Um, and when I said you can't collaborate on everything with everybody, and you can't collaborate on nothing with anyone, um, it implies it's a choice. So what are the other options? And I think until we can clearly understand the other options, we can't think clearly about collaboration. So I want to just take a quick detour on that point, and then I'll come back to your question. So let's say the situation is not the way we want it to be. We're we're unhappy with the way things are. And uh, I know there's, it's fashionable to talk about appreciative inquiry, but I think a lot of the work that animates many people in this room is dissatisfaction with the way things are. Either a little bit or a lot of dissatisfaction with, with the way things are. So what can you do? The first option is you can try to force things to be the way you want them to be. To say, I'm gonna use whatever power I have, my authority, my ideas, my money, my votes, uh, my weapons, whatever, to make things the way I want them to be regardless of what other people want. 
And the reason I'm putting it like that is I'm, I'm trying to rehabilitate force as a legitimate option. I actually think for most people, it's what they would prefer to do most of the time. I, I mean, I, I guess there's some exceptions. Some people would always prefer to work with others. Uh, but most of us would prefer to just get on with doing what we want to do as long as, you know, it's legal. And so when I started to write this book on uh, collaborating with the enemy, and several of my colleagues come up to me and say, wow, book on collaboration. Can I write it with you? This would be great. I said, absolutely not. <laughs> completely out of the question. I've got this idea. I've been thinking about it for years. I'm allowed to do it by myself. It's perfectly legal. Um, and I, I know it's a, it's a creative uh, uh, expression. No, I, I don't need to work on it with anybody else until it got later into the production. So. That's, I'm, I'm giving that deliberately as a, as a simple example, but, but I think most, if you, can just do, if you can just make things the way you want them to be without having to work with others, especially those others, then go ahead. What interests me about the statements the last two days from Premier Notley and Prime Minister Trudeau is when they say the pipeline will be built it's an extraordinary way of making the statement they're making. What's implied is, we will do this regardless. It's a, it's a very strong way of stating it. Not, let's see what we can work out, let's, anyhow. So that's a forcing statement. The second option is adapting. The situation is not the way I want it to be. Uh, I can't make it the way I want it to be, so I'm gonna try to live with it. And the truth is, we spend most of every day adapting. <laughs> when it was cold yesterday morning, and I walked out of my hotel, I couldn't do anything about it, so I adapted. I put, I put on my coat, I wrapped my scarf around my neck. Actually, I have a Buddhist friend who says, most of what we do is deal with things that are not negotiable. And the only reason this is worth emphasizing is that this is contrary to the idea, no, no, we can change everything. We just, if we just try hard enough, we can, get every, we can change everything. No, actually, most things we can't change. So adapting is a very common response. It can take intelligence. It can take courage. The third option is exiting. The situation is not the way I want it to be. I can't make it the way I want it to be. I can't live with it as it is, so I'm getting out of here. I'm quitting my job, I'm moving, I'm getting a divorce. And this can be liberating, it can be tragic. But the point is, these are three options, and collaboration is a fourth option. For some of you, collaboration may be what you'd prefer to do, what you'll try first. For some of you, it may be the last resort. But if you don't understand collaboration, as simply one of the options, you'll get very, the whole, the whole subject doesn't make any sense. Okay, so with that preface, let me come to your, to your question. And the main argument, the, the argument I make in my book is that if you've decided you have to collaborate, whether you like it or don't like it, whether it was your first choice or your last choice, whether you're excited or terrified, you've decided you need to try to work with those others because otherwise you can't get where you're trying to go. Um, the question is, in that case, how to be successful. And the argument I make in the book is that uh, collaboration requires five agreements on five things. The purpose, why we're doing this, what the problem is we're trying to address, what the solution is to the problem, what the plan is to implement the solution, and who's gonna do what to implement the plan. That collaboration requires getting agreement on those five things. Do you agree? This means yes, this means no. Okay, so this was a trick question. Uh, the conve conventional collaboration assumes that, you, that we must get agreement on those five things. This works in a smaller and smaller realm these days. In situations that are complex and out of control, we cannot get agreement on these five things, usually or not for long, and therefore 
Not only can we not get agreement, we do not have to. So, stretch collaboration is what you do when conventional collaboration doesn't work, when you cannot get agreement on the purpose, the problem, the solution, the plan, and who's going to do what. And stretch collaboration, to give the end of my answer, requires or involves three stretches. So, the, it's rather than conventional collaboration, which is attempting or asserting or assuming things are under control in a constrained way, the stretch is the opposite motion. And the three stretches are the following. The first I've already referred to, embrace conflict as well as connection. For some people, like me, who hate conflict, this is very difficult. I would prefer that we could all just agree. I, 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 would, I would like it better, but we can't. So the stretch is how can we embrace conflict as well as connection? How can we recognize that there are multiple holons, there's connections, there's conflict, and we have to work with that. As Santos said, to work with people we do not agree with and may never agree with. So that's the first stretch. The second stretch is to abandon the idea that we can agree it all up front. This is what we have, this is the problem, the solution, this is the plan, this is what we're gonna do. Okay, we agreed, we have an agreement and we implement it. It would be nice if we could do that, but usually we can't, both because of differences and lack of trust and because actually we don't know what's gonna work. We could sit in this room for three months trying to figure out how to read, you know, how to diversify the economy of Calgary or whatever, and we wouldn't know. We'd have an idea, we might have an agreement, but who knows whether it would work. In real life, we have to experiment a way forward. This is the second stretch. And for some people like me, who would prefer everything to be predictable and agreed, this is very uncomfortable. And the third stretch, and this is the most fundamental, often when we talk about change, we say, for the situation to change, people need to change what they're doing. The word that's not pronounced in that sentence is, for the situation to change, other people must change what they're doing. <laughs> and I have a friend who said to me years ago, you know that 60s expression, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem? This is actually not the key point. The key point is if you're not part of the problem, you can't be part of the solution. If you don't see how what you're doing is contributing or part of the story about the way things are, then it follows logically there's nothing you can do about it except from outside by force. And this is very uncomfortable for those of us who say, well, we're not part of the problem, but we want to help, or, uh, or um, we're, we're just consultants, like we're not involved. It's, uh, so the third stretch is to recognize, it's not to, um, recently I've heard people say to, to, uh, To say, it's not to say you're part of the problem, it's to realize you're part of the problem. <laughs> you might or might not want to admit it, but you're part of the situation. And so the third stretch is to step into the game, recognizing that you'll need to change yourself. Um, in the wonderful thing about writing a book is you're always thinking about it for years and years. And there was a period near the end of the writing where I realized I can easily spend hours every day thinking about what other people really ought to be doing. <laughs> what my clients ought to be doing, what my goddamn colleagues ought to be doing, what my children ought to be doing, what Mr. Trump ought to be doing. And in a way, it's a very soothing way to pass the time. I mean, it's frustrating in a way, but it's nothing about me, it's just those people. And I realized that it is actually almost completely useless. It, and, okay, it may be useful to think about the larger system, but sooner rather than later, we have to come back to the question, what am I going to do differently? It is literally the only question that matters. What am I going to do next? So that's the third stretch. The third stretch is to accept your own role and responsibility in the game and to act accordingly. And again, for those of us who are used to thinking ourselves as, well, we're the good guys, it's those other people who are causing all the problem. Uh, 
I was involved uh, 12 years ago in a very, very complicated project on child malnutrition in India. 96 stakeholder groups, just a real mess uh, of a project. And at a certain point, I became very confused. But what we and I went to a mentor of mine, a, an Indian guy named Arun Mayer, and I said, Arun, what are we doing here? And he said, uh, Adam, here's what we're doing. When you have a group of stakeholders that come and sit around a table to discuss an issue, 100% of them arrive in the room thinking if only those other people would change what they're doing, we'd be fine. But if we're all there, it's not mathematically possible that it's all the other people. So he said, what we're doing is helping people figure out what they need to do differently. That's the third stretch. And it's hard, especially for those of us who like to think of ourselves as outside and above the problem. Yeah, so there you go. Saved you having to read 120 pages and 1595. Yeah. It, it was a great summary. I still recommend the book. Changing Ourselves. Um, a quote from Power and Love. If we want to exercise leadership in a changing world, we must be willing to change ourselves, you wrote. Now, a quote from Collaborating with the Enemy, where you build upon that, I think, you observe that people don't dislike change, but they dislike being changed. So, given that, what are, are there some preconditions that are necessary for being open to learning and changing ourselves. Um, um, no, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, I'm in general skeptical about preconditions because usually they're excuses. Um, uh, and in particular, um, I've often been asked over the years, do you need people at a certain level of maturity to do this work? Um, and the problem with these hierarchies of maturity is almost rationally, the question is, uh, what do I need to do to get where I'm trying? If we think about it pragmatically and rationally, what do I need to do to get where I'm trying to go? Can I get there on my own or just with my friends and colleagues? With our friends and colleagues is becoming smaller and smaller every day. And therefore, there's more and more situations where even if we don't want to, we need to find a way to work with others. That's why I'm so, that's why I'm so surprised at this vocabulary uh, of Notley and Trudeau in the last uh, 48 hours. It may just be part of some long negotiation that's invisible to us, but to assert it is going to be built, this is an extraordinary statement. <laughs> it's saying, we're done talking, it's going to be the way we want it to be. It's a, it's a very radical, as I say, it may be part of a, and, and similarly statements from, from the other side, it's not going to be built. We will prevent it from being built. This is a this very polarized uh, way of approaching the situation, and I assume there's some whole other realm going on that's not visible to us about trying to figure out a way forward. But, sorry, I keep coming back to that example because I think it's so, uh, so interesting and so important uh, and so, so crucial at this moment in our history. Um, uh, but, um, yes, so to come back to your question, um, if you want to do it on your own or with your friends and colleagues and you think you can, then go for it. As I did with my book, as, as most of us do with most things every day. Uh, but when you can't, uh, you really need, when you can't make it work on your own, when forcing, adapting and exiting, when you think they won't work, uh, and you need to collaborate, you really need to think about whether the conventional way of collaborating, which is getting everybody in the boardroom and trying to hash out agreement on these five things, purpose, problem, solution, plan, and roles, 
is actually going to work or whether this, you could say more uncomfortable, but I'm lately beginning to think of it more realistic approach to collaboration is required. I, the way I uh, have come to think of this work now, uh, a year after the book's published, is that what I'm calling this unconventional, uncomfortable stretch collaboration is simply a more realistic way of approaching the world we live in, where most of it's out of control, most of it, maybe all of it, is out of control, and uh, and and there are yes connections, yes love on the one hand, but also differences and power and conflict on the other. That's the reality of what we're dealing with, and we can pretend it's not like that, and try to make it into this this conventional model, but it doesn't work. You know, Henry Mintzberg, uh, the management professor at McGill, is famous in his, I think, in all of his writings for writing about what managers really do, which is not the same as what they think they're supposed to be doing or what they were taught in business school they're supposed to be doing. And I think I'm saying something similar, that you might think that collaboration is supposed to be this series of agreements, but it's actually not like that. What it really is, is this embracing conflict as well as connection, uh, experimenting a way forward and stepping into the game. And I didn't invent stretch collaboration, I just gave a name to something that probably half of you say, yeah, that's what I do all the time. That's fine, I'm just trying to give it a name to say that the way we're used to thinking about collaboration usually doesn't work and cannot work. And let's adopt a more realistic model of how to work with others. Very good. Adam, I want to ask you one more question before I open this up to the audience to offer their comments, questions, insights. And the question is about the nonprofit sector or civil society as we might call it. And whether or not there are any particular characteristics that might make it a bit more open to the kind of collaboration you're talking about. In your work, you worked across all, all sectors, governments, business leaders, civil society leaders. Have you seen differences in approaches or trends that are observable that would characterize some sectors being readier than others? And what about the nonprofit sector? Uh, yeah, the, the thing that I like so much about our work is that we work with, well, with everybody, and usually all in one room. So that's a lot of fun and interesting, and I think each of the sectors has their uh, peculiarities and challenges. For example, uh, in the government sector, experimentation is really a very, seen as a very dangerous thing to do, and the business sector suffers, at least in the last 20 years, from a belief that if only everybody was like them, things would be fine. Um, but I actually think there's a, a weakness in the or a typical weakness in the nonprofit sector, <clears throat> or two of them, the two related ones that I'd like to mention. Um, there's a quote by James Hillman that I like so much, I've used it in both in Power and Love and Collaborating with the Enemy, and I, I won't get it exactly, but uh, it's on this question of power, and he, he asks the question, uh, why is power why is power so difficult in the caring professions? Uh, relig uh, religious organizations, uh, voluntary organizations, um, um, uh, I can't remember his list, medical profession, uh, um, I would add consulting. Why is power more difficult to work with in, the, in that sector compared to the political and business sector. And he gives an answer that I think is right on, which is that in business and, and politics, power is understood as a absolutely necessary and legitimate uh, uh, dimension of the world. It's half the story, as in this quote from, from Martin Luther King Jr. And therefore, in politics and business, it can be handled in a much cleaner way. 
whereas in what he calls the caring professions, but I would extend that to consulting and the voluntary sector to take, um, it's not, it's considered something dirty. It doesn't go away, it just goes underground. Somebody told me years ago, uh, I work, he said, I work a lot as a consultant in different sectors, and let me tell you, the hardest place to be a consultant is in healthcare. Because as soon as you're really getting to the difficult issues, somebody will say, remember the patients. Nobody had ever forgotten the patients. But saying remembering the, remember the patients, or let's talk about caring, this is a way of escaping from the real differences and conflict in this case in doctors and nurse, nurses and patients and administrators and specialists, etc. cetera. So, um, uh, I would say, and I say this not just to promote sales power and love, that the, the typical weakness of the voluntary sector is, a, is an incorrect assumption that power is dirty. Uh, uh, it's something that's not needed, that all you need is love, to come back to the first thing I said. I, I, I think this is completely incorrect, and it just makes the power go underground and get perverted, literally perverted. Somebody once, uh, when I was talking about the book Power and Love many years ago, somebody once stood up and said, I am an Anglican priest, I've worked, worked for years in the question of clergy sex abuse. And I thought he was gonna say, my experiences, these are people who abuse power, but he said it in the opposite way. He said, my experience, these are people who are very uncomfortable with power. And so it literally becomes perverted. Uh, so I think this is a generic problem in the helping professions, uh, at least in some part of the helping professions, and it's, and it's really evident in the philanthropic sector, where the power questions in philanthropy are undiscussable, or in many contexts undiscussable. No, no, we're all here for the children. It's, we're all here for the patients. Well, yes, that's part of the story, and there's other stuff going on here. And the inability, so, sorry, that's a long answer, but, <laughs> but I, to me this is very important. It's why I, why I imported this whole argument about power, the need for power as well as love, and that power without love is reckless and abusive, and love without power is sentimental and anemic into the new book as well. I think it's, it's fundamental, and it's the typical error in the voluntary sector. Okay, thank you for that insight. Very helpful. It's such a pleasure to talk with you. I don't want to monopolize this conversation, friends. Clearly, Adam Kahane's global experience and deep thinking about the subject of collaboration helps spark and provoke new thinking, challenging some of our most basic assumptions about working together with diverse partners. And he provided a fitting conclusion to our Connections Conference, thinking differently together. I'm David Mitchell, and you've been listening to Unplugged, a CCVO podcast.